Hello and welcome to episode 69. 69! I was going to say, no sniggering there, there Johnny, but uh, you've gone straight in there. Um, of the Classic Lenses podcast. Uh, my name is Simon Forster and I'm hosting this podcast from Stoke-on-Trent in the UK. And joining me is Johnny Sisson in Chicago, Illinois. Hello, Johnny. Illinois. That's Illinois. right. I'm in Illinois today. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> I was, what's, the, what's the weather forecast today? <sighs> Man, I was gonna try to break the uh, the cliche weather forecast thing, and you just throw me right back in it, Simon. <laughs> yeah, it's sunny as hell today. Sun, sun, lots of sun. I think it's gonna rain though later. It's been rainy all weekend, so okay. but we'll see. But right but, now it's sun. But you've got colors out there now. It's not all gray. Yes, uh, yes, it is sun colored today. It's it's green and st- green on the leaves, and it's sunny. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. Right. Well, first off, uh, I want to thank uh, those people that have um, donated via our coffee page. That's uh, ko-fi. I think it's forward slash classic lenses. But if you go to coffee.com and search classic lenses, you will find it. And just to remind people that this month, any donations that are made to us, uh, well, all the way through the month of May, uh, we are those donations are going to go straight to the down syndrome association of central florida um and they are the people that have supported uh, carl pam and andy over the years um and i'm really really pleased to say that uh, as of now uh, people have donated 330 pounds to the cause oh well well done classic lenses podcast family Absolutely. And there's still time left. I mean, uh, the podcast is actually podcast is going out, out today and today's the 27th of May. So there is still, I think, till Friday, I think, uh, to, yeah. um, to to make donations to that call. So uh, and of course, you can also uh, donate directly uh, to um, to the Down Syndrome Association of Central Florida by going to www.dsacf.org. So um Two ways to donate there. Um, yep. Okay. Right then. On to this week. We what have, are we doing this week, Simon? Yeah. Well, we've got a returning guest um, because talking from Hong Kong. Hello, Perry G. Hello. I'm back. Yo, Perry G. What's up? Well, we're we're delighted to have you back, and if we're so happy about you coming back, we're going to banish you to a desert island today. <laughs> uh, I've come prepared. Yes, yes, um, and to argue as well, I believe. Um, <laughs> but uh, be, before before you, we we send you away, um, you were back. You were on the show back in March. Uh, this year, right at the start of March, and perhaps you can give people a little bit of an update of what you've been up to. Yeah, uh, quite a lot photographically. I think since that episode, I've shot like 30 rolls of film, um, and now I'm really backlogged in terms of going through them and uh, like curating and editing. Um, but, you know, once winter ended, my girlfriend and I, we started doing these sort of weekend excursions uh, to explore parts of Hong Kong that we don't really go to. And she's been really enjoying, I think, these these sort of photo walks that we've been going on. So I got her, um, well, I got myself a uh, Konica Hexar RF a while back, thinking that she would like using it. Because every time I go out and I drag her uh, shooting with me and I like shove a Leica M2 in her hand, 
she goes, I, how do you use this thing? How do I turn it on? <laughs> so I was like, you know what? I'll, I'll get something with, with automatic exposure. She really loves the thing. And sometimes uh, she, she gets much better shots than I do. Um, I was going to say, that's a really, really selfless act uh, to, to yeah, give exactly. your such a great camera, which you've got no interest in whatsoever, of course. <laughs> yeah, not much, not much. Oh, I mean, it's really nice. It's, uh, you know, I, I was at one of the shops that I go to quite often and, and they'd had it there for a really good price. And um, honestly, I did get it with her in mind. This is not just like adding to my ridiculous collection. But yeah, I, I probably use it just as much as she does. <laughs> I think that's fair. Um, <laughs> so I've been doing that. Uh, also suffered through a worldwide Cinestill shortage. Yeah. Um, oh, I've that, been hit, shooting... that particularly yeah. hits you, Perry G. <laughs> no, I mean, I've been, I've been shooting a lot at night with Cinestill, as, as you guys know. And I think Cinestill was backlogged for like a couple of months, mm -hmm. uh, pretty much right after we recorded. And so once it came back in stock, I went and I bought like 20 rolls um, of 35 mil and, and 120. And um, I've been out shooting at night. And last time I was on, we talked about Fan Ho, who's a big kind of inspiration behind my day-to-day -day street photography. But for the nighttime stuff, I really have been trying to use Cinestill to get shots that look like Wong Kar Wai's cinematography. Mm. Um, have, you, have you guys heard of him? No, What's no. Uh, what? What films has he done? Yeah, yeah. So, so he he's he's uh, a legend in Hong Kong. But his movies, he's done in the mood for love, uh, Chongqing Express. Oh yeah, um, okay. and a bunch of others like that. I think people, yeah, outside of Hong Kong, people would know his films more than his actual name. Uh, but he's got a really beautiful aesthetic in the way that he uses light and color, mm -hmm. and and Sinister, I think, kind of replicates that to a certain degree, and. Oh, one thing happened in the group recently. I posted a bunch of shots with uh, Sinistil at night. I was shooting sort of neon signs and stuff in Hong Kong. And one of my photos, um, there's a guy, I think he's an admin in the group, George George Fielder. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he commented on one of them. And he says, oh, this shot reminds me of that movie Chongqing Express. <laughs> and when he said that, I was like, yes. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going for. <laughs> awesome um and, and that's been that's been cool because i don't shoot film at at night a lot because it's hard so that's been that's mm -hmm. been pretty fun um other than that uh i went on a trip you know my girlfriend works in the airline industry so we get cheap tickets when uh when there are seats available on the flight so we went to jeju island in south korea where i brought my uh my travel camera uh fuji xt10 couple lenses got some cool shots and I'm still trying to get over that hoodoo with traveling with film. Mm -hmm. I've done it a few times and I've never had any problems with with it getting hand checked uh, at the airport. But every time I'm just there's there's something that makes me not bring a film camera and I'm like trying to get over that psychological block. Does that happen to you guys? Well, I I don't I don't travel enough. Although I, I was in Madeira um, not so long ago and I came very close to taking the film camera but i i, I chickened out um I, so i i just went digital the part of that was just was traveling light um, but the other part was the, the cameras i wanted to take with me um this was more than one film camera i wanted to take with me um they were cameras that i hadn't tried and hadn't tested um one of which was um one of the 
I think it was Horizon 202, I think it is. I think that's the number. So it's one of those oh, uh, yeah. panoramic ones. And it looks perfect. Um, it looks hardly used, but that is also something when you're talking about Soviet cameras, a hardly used Soviet camera is sometimes a camera that doesn't work. Um, so uh, so I, I, I chickened out on that. Actually, I chickened out on that because of Ian Fleming and a comment that he made that I think he's had three of the things and uh, eventually found yeah. one that worked. So I thought that's just too much of a risk. And the other camera I wanted to take was a, um, a rolling cord, uh, a four by four rolling cord, a uh, rolling flex, sorry. Um, because it's just cute and lovely. Um, but again, it's something that it looks nice, but I haven't used it yet. So I, I just couldn't take the risk and I didn't particularly want to take a film camera that I've already used for some reason. Mm. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that really would be another, another one for the questionable list. If you haven't put film through it for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I don't travel a lot oh, yeah, either. Yeah. I was gonna say, I don't, I don't, I haven't traveled a lot lately either, but, um, I mean, I when I do, I guess I only I don't really have a travel camera. I just use the same stuff all the time. So I I would just be taking my everyday stuff. Um, and and the last time I did travel, I did travel with film, and it was no problem. I mean, um, at least I guess here th there's no problem requesting hand check on film. Um, they seem to do it, you know, without any question. And I I always keep a a few boxes of uh, like the Delta 3200 boxes. And I put my film in there because they see the big 3200. Then they're like, oh, 3200. I'll we got to hand check that. Um, <laughs> so that's always worked. But so that said, I, I, I think I, I don't know if I've told this story before, but um, Captain Devlin Cook, our, our buddy, the airline pilot, my, my friend who stops in at Central Camera, um, he's literally a pilot and flies all, all over the world. As a matter of fact, he was in Hong Kong this past week. Um, mm -hmm. And he has told me that he's bought all kinds of film in bulk from, you know, in Tokyo, et cetera. Hand checks it, has never had a single frame of film, you know, with any kind of x-ray fogging. And he thinks it's all a bunch of BS. He, he basically says, don't worry about it. Just take your film. It'll be fine. So that to me, that's really reassuring because if anyone knows, it's Captain Cook. The, the, there is one, one uh, I say one exception. Uh, this has been something that's popped up on, on lots of different podcasts, whether it be Negative Positive, Sunday 16 and, and, and so on. And, and actually, I think uh, M has been chatting about it to Hamish on, uh, on his latest uh, Hypersensitive Photographers podcast as well. Uh, but the, the point being is... Yeah, if if it's going through um, the normal uh, hand luggage scans, right. Right. Um, it's it's just not an issue now. Um, I think where things can fall down is when stuff is uh, possibly going into the hold. Uh, yeah, don't and, check it. Yeah, yeah, you don't you don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, definitely not. And all, and also, I've heard some stories about if you're going into some quite far flung. Uh, places in the world, um, you know, the, the, in the back of beyond, um, yeah. then they they may well be using equipment that uh, that was phased out in other countries, you know, a decade or more ago, that are just like irradiating absolutely everything that goes anywhere near it, and makes your oranges right, last right. for six months um, after going through. <laughs> um, so uh, those those things are, are to be to be uh, a bit more wary about. But generally speaking, yeah. the hand hand luggage just isn't a problem. It seems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, when I have traveled with film, it hasn't been a problem, but uh, you got to be careful about where you're staying, too, because there was one time when 
we were staying in uh, Myanmar and our hotel in Yangon had uh, uh, basically a security check every time you went in and out of the hotel uh, with an x-ray scanner. And I uh, think if I hadn't gotten my film hand checked by the end, by the end of it, they knew me and they just kind of just let me go through without um, hand checking everything. But I think if you're going in and out constantly with the x-ray, then that, that might be an issue too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, aside from, uh, that trip, uh, I have been locked in this long, weird chat group with Johnny and Hamish Gill, uh, over our, our <laughs> top core collusion, um, which Johnny talked about last week, but this, this chat group has, uh, led to both of them buying the top core S five CMF two LTM. It's led to Hamish buying, Four other lenses. I think a Jupiter three, <laughs> Nikkor fifty one point four sonar, yeah. uh, a couple of other things. Um, it's led to. I think it's partly responsible for Johnny and his blue Bessa. Yeah, I would. <laughs> I, would I would say that's true, Perry. That's pretty much. I. That's pretty much true. I would agree. Um, yeah, I mean, it's. I have that camera. It's great. Blue is a little questionable, but hey, it's, <laughs> it's, it's healthy, more. Right? It's more than questionable. <laughs> now, I, you know, I will. I will say in my defense. Okay, real quick, not to cut you off, Barry, but I don't really do yeah. flashy. I, I know it. It might sound like I'm. You know, maybe that wouldn't be my style. But I gotta tell you, I am not a flashy, a flashy person. So. For, I don't have any cameras that are repainted. I don't have anything like that. I just leave it as is. But I mean, it's the way it, that's the way it came. It was supposed to be that way. So I don't know. It doesn't yeah. seem flashy to me. <laughs> no, no, it's fair enough. <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's pretty cool. And it's also that, that chat group has led to me buying a couple of lenses as well, including three copies of the same lens. Um, <laughs> way to go, Perry. That's the way no, to do because it. This lens is... Like we were talking about it, uh, it's a long discussion. You know, yeah. I'll save that for another day. But basically, <laughs> um, the lens is so rare that I asked Bellamy to find me one, and Bellamy was like, uh, "Man, that's so rare. I, I don't even know how much they go for. <laughs> um, if I ever see one, I'll let you know." And then I was like, "Oh, okay, fine, fine, fine." And then one day, three of them popped up. Uh, <laughs> one popped up on eBay, and two popped up on this Japanese auction site. And so I, I bought the one on eBay right away. Uh, it arrived today. Um, and then the other two, I stayed up and, in, and I was locked in like these hour long bidding wars with Japanese buyers because like the way that the auctions work there is if someone makes a bid in the last five minutes and they try to snipe, then the auction gets extended for another five minutes. Oh, get oh. out of here. Really? Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Oh, which, which is more fair, right? Um, I, yeah, I guess, especially if you want to drive the price of the sale price up. Sure. <laughs> I know. So I'm just wow. sitting there going like for for literally an hour for both of these. Just bid, 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 bid until I finally, <laughs> finally, you know, outlasted the guys. We're, we're an hour behind them uh, time wise. So I like to think that the time difference gave me a little. <laughs> I mean, I got them for a really good price. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. So there's that, and then um, other than that, I have uh, I finally got Instagram. Um, I got pressured into it by a whole bunch of people. Uh, actually, it turned out I already had an account from like years and years and years and years ago, but I, I just never used it. Um, and then I've just written my first 
article for 35MMC, but it's not published yet, so I won't talk about that yet. Oh, very good. I was going to say, did you did you actually mention what the, the name of these three lenses that you've now bought? Uh, the secret one? Oh, no, uh, sorry, it's not a secret one. You mean the, the one I got three of the same copy? Yeah, and, um, and one's just turned up today. Yeah, it, I didn't mention it. It's the uh, it's the top. It's a top core. It's a top core fifty millimeter f two point eight in LTM. And the reason I bought this lens is because uh, we have been having this long discussion where <laughs> Hamish and I both kind of agree that the most sort of optically perfect fifty millimeter lens we've tried is the uh, Voigtlander fifty millimeter f three point five Heliar. Um, I have the collapsible version, and Hamish is tried the weird like cone shaped version and it's stunning optically but the handling is atrocious it's so bad um like the aperture ring rotates like 180 degrees when you turn it uh when you focus and it's, it's just obnoxiously designed so then we were looking at lens diagrams as you know normal people do on, on a saturday night um <laughs> and while we were talking about the top core f2 which is a biotar design, but then the top core f2.8 is a Heliar. And so, you know, we were like, oh, that's cool, that's exciting. And I told Hamish, yeah, you're never gonna find one though. These are these are super rare. <laughs> um, and then lo and behold, I, I now have three. <laughs> so that's the lens. If we can find one, get it. It's good. And and <laughs> the the reason for it is it's just optically well corrected is that is that is that is that the main reason for it um well ha have you ever tried the voigtlander 53.5 heliar no no so yeah that lens is um it was reviewed by some photo magazine decades ago as like the sharpest lens they had ever tested yeah. uh which and, and so they re-released it as a 101st anniversary lens that goes with um some of the besses but yeah it's it's super sharp it's got a really nice character um and it, it doesn't look super modern, but it's got like oodles of that 3D pop. Oh, right. uh, and it's just, a, yeah, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's 3, F3.5, which some people, I think it would put them off. Um, and and I, have, I have the collapsible one, which handles a little bit better than the cone-shaped one, because the focus ring is too thin on the cone. But it, it looks really phallic. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a bizarre-looking bizarre lens. No, you know how most collapsible lenses, you've got the base and then the tube sticks out, but then the front is usually just like like a disc? This one, it, 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 it's like almost a mushroom-shaped head because there are two wings for the aperture. Is so it, it orange, looks too? <laughs> it's an orange mushroom-shaped lens? No, but you could get one repainted orange for this your This week on Classic Lenses Podcast, episode 69, phallic lenses. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's a good lens, but it, it, it's, it's a pain in the butt to you. So the top core... Um, is nothing like that. It has the aperture still rotates, which is annoying, but it's only a ninety degree focus throw, and it's um, there's no infinity lock, and it's just like it handles pretty similar to the f two, which is it handles so so well. I just just want to take you back to that magazine article that described it as the 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 sharpest lens ever. Um, yeah, that, that just reminds me of of something that. Uh, Johnny showed me funnily enough I think that was about a, a top core a 35 millimeter top core and that article was basically also saying it was the uh, the, the, the sharpest lens they've, they've ever tested as well can you remember that Johnny uh, I do I, I do remember well because I, I I know that I've called into question uh, 
old school magazine, photo magazine reviews because, you know, number one, they're testing on film. They miss focus. Who knows? Number two, not like they had anything to gain by hyping the advertisers' mm-hmm. lenses, right? Um, <laughs> but that said, of course, if we're talking top core lenses, we know it must be true. Well, the, the, the magazine that I think it was popular photography that reviewed yeah, the Heliar. Pop, pop photo, yeah. Um, but the top core, do you know which 35 that was? Was it the LTM one? I no, you no. know what, Perry? Perry, I think it was the uh, it, it's the um, UV Topcon Exacta. Yeah, no, not the UV. Uh, the to, the the top Ari, the sorry, uh, Ari. Yeah, yeah, the, the Ari, Ari exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. the barrel of that looks really similar to the fifty two point eight that I just got today. Yeah. Um, but the the LTM version of that lens is is super rare as well. Yeah. And it comes with this gigantic one to one external <laughs> viewfinder. Which is bigger than the lens, and it's it's, yeah. it's ridiculous. But I kind of want one. I do too. Totally want one. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I think we've 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 caught up with you uh, on your yep. latest exploits. I never realised we we're going to talk so much about top calls. Um, I, I I do like top calls as well. Um, although I don't have any any LTMs, so who knows? One one day. Um, but this week. Uh, we've brought you back, and uh, we've brought you back uh, to send you to the to our desert island. It's not really a desert island. It's got lots of lots of wonderful opportunities there, including people. Um, but for the for the people who have not heard of desert island lenses uh, scenario, um, I'm just going to re- read out pretty much what it what it's about. So, and this is the task that I've. I've I've sent you, uh, Perry. Um, your ship, the SS Tessar, has capsized, um, and uh, after encountering a freak wave and now lies at the bottom of the sea, you've been washed ashore um, on an amazing island with just about every photographic opportunity available to you. Um, there are people there, there's every kind of shooting that you actually might want to do. Um, the island has a fully equipped uh, dark cave and solar powered computer uh, so you can process things and you can whether it be film or with digital a trunk a trunk has washed ashore and it contains two camera bodies of your choice uh, they could be digital analog combination of both along with three lenses that you have in your own collection um, and uh, so what are those three lenses that you're bringing with you and secondly uh, if you've got a free choice of any lens in the world that you want to bring with you, what would that be? So let's let's go right back to the start on that, and let's talk about your camera choices first. So, uh, what are the two cameras you're bringing with you? Okay, um, and I want to caveat with there's one more thing in the box for me, which is also my camera bag, uh, because all three of the lenses and bodies, the two bodies I pick, will fit into this one camera bag. Um, so the first camera that I'm bringing with me, uh, is my Leica M6. Um, this is the first Leica I got. Uh, it's my favorite camera. It's the one camera that you will have to pry off my cold, dead hands. Um, you know, I have a pretty big collection, but this is, there are some cameras that you just know inside out and... This is the one that I can operate, you know, in my sleep. I understand the meter, um, and the meter is very nice, and it, it feels good to use. The only thing I don't like about the M6 is the little uh, rewind dial is the modern diagonal type. I actually prefer the old mm-hmm. knob style. 
Um, but this is old reliable. You know, I'm sure we all have one camera, whether it's film or digital, that's just our, our rock uh, that we would never get rid of. So that's, that's my first camera. Okay, just, just, um, just talking a little bit more about the M6 then. Uh, I'm, I'm just wondering, okay, so that was, that was your first one, but there are other uh, M cameras out there. Um, mm -hmm. why, why would you pick an M6 over, say, an M7 or an M2 or oh. an M3? Yeah, okay, cool. Um, so I do have quite a few M bodies. I have an M2, I have an M3, I have a Hexar RF and some digital. Um, but the M6, uh, a couple of things. Number one, compared to, first of all, frame lines, right? 35 millimeter is my favorite uh, focal length, and the M3 doesn't have 35 millimeter frame lines. Um, so unless you're going to use the goggles with the old uh, Subacrons and stuff, then, then that's out. Um, number two, it's fully mechanical, uh, and the battery only operates the meter. So an M7, I always feel nervous around electronic film cameras. It's a little bit irrational, but I like having something that, A, um, won't get, like have the electronics fried, especially if it's just sunk off a SS Tessar ship. <laughs> uh, and also just, you know, I, I have really bad luck with batteries, and... A lot of modern cameras, their battery life's not that great, and I, I just, I just, my batteries always run out when I don't want them to run out. So there's that. Um, and over the M2, I think a few things. Number one, the uh, the film loading is a lot quicker on the M6 because the, the old Leicas, like the M2 and the M3, they have the little spool that you have to pull out uh, and then you know stick the film inside. And the old Barnacks are even worse because you have to trim the leader or do some stupid stuff to get the film inside um so it's much faster to actually load the film and uh yeah i mean they're all pretty much the same right so it's pick one and do you want a meter okay get an m5 and m6 or an m7 do you want aperture priority well then it's it's an m7 or a zeiss icon um zm or a, a hexar rf so I, I like the meter but i don't like automatic stuff and the m5 is ugly uh, actually, that that's a, is, a, is a question which I, I don't know if either of you could answer. Um, because you just said there about the electronic uh, cameras there, and I, I, I get where you're coming from there. I'm just, just wondering about the M7, whether or not it, it cannot be used without a battery. I believe that's the case. Yeah. and and I think one shutter speed works without the battery. Is that right? I don't know, because I've never seen one that's working. I've seen... <laughs> <laughs> so that that, that uh, if that didn't just sum up for y'all how I feel about the M7, I I don't know, but yeah, I've never seen a working one. I've seen a lot of dead ones. <laughs> yeah, I mean there are a couple of these um, automatic film uh, automatic exposure film cameras that have like the Nikon F3. It needs a battery to run the shutter, but if the battery dies dies, there's a manual shutter release mm. that'll yeah. release it at like one eightieth of a second. The M7 might be like that too, but uh that's something that you know yeah I it'll it'll it i know i know it will but that that is such a problematic camera I plus mean, it's so expensive um yeah, it's I, for I the mean, addition of yeah <laughs> so i think you know if you're gonna get an aperture priority uh like a m body i really like the hexar rf and the zeiss icon zm because their viewfinders are um, a little bit, the magnification is a little bit different. So like if you're like me and you wear glasses, 
Um, I can see the 28 millimeter frame lines really well on the Hexar RF and pretty well on the Zeiss Icon, but on the normal Leicas, it's, it's almost impossible unless you get one of the uh, custom made ones with a smaller magnification. Mm. Okay, well, uh, thank, thanks for that. And what will be your second camera? Okay, so this was really hard for me because the way that I shoot, uh, I usually only have one camera and one lens. And if I have another camera, it's a different format. So the cameras that I use the most after the M6 are the uh, Bronica RF645 and the X-Pan. But like, I can't bring those because they only have like three lenses that are made for them. Um, so the second camera I'm bringing, uh, because of the lenses I'm going to choose later, is my Leica M240. Um, or Leica M Type 240 to give it its proper name. Uh, and the, I mean, this is the only digital Leica I have. Um, it has live view, so I use a lot to test like rangefinder calibration on lenses that I buy. Um, but the one thing that has stopped me from even considering upgrading to the M10 or M10P or M10D, uh, other than like price, is um, the battery life again. Because the M10 series, their battery life is pretty similar to most digital cameras these days, like 300-something shots on a battery. But because the M240 is uh, four millimeters thicker, um, which people complain about for some reason, uh, the battery is fat. And that thing lasts forever. I, I, like, I, have, I bought a second battery for my 240, and I've never, ever brought a backup battery with me on a shoot and it's just like when i go out and if i'm bringing a digital camera i check the battery and if it's below 40 percent, then i'll just put that battery in the charger and take the other one if it's if it's 40 percent or above i just take it because it's going to last me the whole day anyway um so that's yeah i mean i really like that camera um and i'm gonna bring a bunch of rangefinder lenses so so i have other digital cameras like a sony a7r2 but there's really no reason uh, for me not to bring a digital rangefinder. Yeah, I mean, I was I was going to ask you um, why you would do that, but uh, you've you've already given the game away uh, now that we know that you've brought the rangefinder lenses with you, and we know that unfortunately the uh, certainly the A7 uh, two range of cameras don't play that well. Uh, maybe with possible exception of the A7S uh, Mark II, don't play that well with rangefinder lenses. So that's quite understandable, really. Yeah, and you know, um, I shoot mostly film, but for the sake of our listeners, I'm going to bring a digital camera. Um, plus, for those times when I want to shoot ISO 3200, uh, you know, you can't you can't really do that with film very consistently. Well, that's, that's an that's an interesting point uh, because I mean, you can buy ISO 3200 film. Um, so, uh, yeah. do, you, do you want to ex expand on that on that point? Yeah, I, I mean, there are fast films, but the way that I look at them, um, stuff like Fuji Natura 1600, uh, T-Max 3200, um, and, and Ilford Delta, right? Um, the way that I look at those films is less as low-light films um, and more as films that, because of the speed, they let you get faster shutter speeds uh, for, like, normal shooting. Because if you underexpose T-Max 3200, it looks like... It looks like garbage. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I think like uh, using those films as a way of replacing, you know, something that you might use that's better at low light is it's going to be a little bit frustrating. So I haven't been a huge fan of results 
I've gotten um, using film in low light, the exception being Cinestill 800T. Uh, but I think that film is like designed for artificial light. So yeah. just bring a faster lens if that's what you're shooting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, right then. So you've got three lenses with you. Um, we were chatting beforehand and uh, it seems that whittling it down to three lenses might have been a bit difficult for you. Oh man, this was so difficult. First of all, I thought it was five lenses. So I had this list that took me ages <laughs> to put together. And then two days before the podcast, Simon goes, okay, so it's three lenses. I was like, three? What? <laughs> and and not only that, I had basically a short list of three lenses for each focal length that I just I couldn't pick between. And I've been oscillating between these. I've revised my list like six million times. Um, and so I asked Simon before the show, hey, can I do like a short list approach where we count down um, my my second runner up and my first runner up and then get to the winner of each each focal length and he was like no it's gonna be a six hour show if we do that <laughs> so about half an hour ago i was like crossing stuff out and just you know feeling my heartbreak with these lenses that i love that i can't talk about uh I'm, so actually, yes I'm, I'm i'm curious actually um, and no you can't you still can't do your short list um but um, <laughs> but if if you did have a short list, which then would that have potentially altered your choice of camera as well, because you may have bought other lenses with you or not, or would you have still ended up with the with the two cameras that you've chosen? Um, they, I think I would have still ended up with the two cameras that I've chosen. Uh, I could there were only two lenses in consideration that weren't rangefinder lenses, um, and. They, they were like a Contax Yashica lens and a Alpha Kern Macro Switar lens, which is rangefinder coupled anyway. So um, they wouldn't have made my short list. They, they were on my long list. Yeah. 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 Like, okay. I, I'm really obsessed with rangefinders and rangefinder lenses. Uh, so, so my entire short list was like the idea was a way for me to smuggle more rangefinder lenses into this <laughs> conversation. <laughs> I, I I I get I get the love for range rangefinder lenses. I I would have more of it if they work better on my Sony. Uh, there's no two ways about yeah. it. And, uh, and yeah. we keep we keep hearing good things about the Nikon Z cameras, um, mm -hmm. but uh, uh, that's that's uh, way out of my budget at the moment. So um, yeah, okay then. Yeah, so, I mean bang for the buck. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So first lens then. Uh, what's what's number one? <clears throat> okay. So a little bit about my criteria before I dive in. I like lenses that are small, uh, hence rangefinder. Uh, I like lenses that handle well. Um, character is a bonus, uh, but I also like lenses that have a good amount of that sort of 3D poppy rendering, um, which is one of those things that it's a little bit controversial, right? Because some people can't see it or, or think it's a myth. Um, but it's like, you know when you watch a movie uh, or you watch a, t a TV show and they've got like motion smoothing turned on um, on the TV. So everything gets sampled to 60 frames per second. Like I can't watch uh, <laughs> movies when they're when they're played that way. But then people I know uh, when I've like been changing settings on their TVs, I'm like, nobody cares about this. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> you, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Okay, good, good. Wait, so, I just like that. You, yeah. So, so Perry, you go over to people's houses to watch TV and you change their <laughs> TV setup? I just want to, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I was at my girlfriend's place over Christmas, Christmas break, right? And we were watching uh, – Love, Love Actually was playing on the TV. And um, they had motion smoothing turned on. So it, it had been sampled from 
its original 24 frames per second, which is, you know, the way that God intended movies to be seen. Uh, <laughs> and it like sampled it up to 60 frames per second. And I was sitting there going like, I can't watch this. It's making me dizzy. It looks like, it looks like garbage. So I just grabbed the remote. I started changing the settings in the middle of the movie. And, and, uh, and they were like, what are you doing? I was like, look, it looks so much better now. Right. They're like, no, it's the same. Nobody cares about this. <laughs> um, yeah. So yes, I, I do do that. <laughs> All right. Um, lenses. So the first lens uh, is a wide angle, um, and it's the newest lens on my list. Uh, and it is the Ricoh 28 millimeter f2.8 GR lens in LTM mount. So this lens was made in 1997. Uh, they made 3,000 of them, 2,000 in silver and 1,000 in black. And it's essentially the lens from the Ricoh GR compact film camera, uh, ripped out and rehoused into an LTM body. Now, in this era, there were an entire series of lenses that sort of followed this sort of design ethos. So they did it with the 21 millimeter Ricoh. Uh, the Minolta TC1 had its 28 millimeter 3.5 lens rehoused. Um, Roly's uh, 40 millimeter 2.8 sonar from the Roly 35S has had this done to it. There's a whole bunch of them, and they all have like wonderful handling. And that's the reason why I choose this lens because it's not the best rendering 28 millimeter lens I have, but like who cares at 28 millimeters? Um, it's it's sharp enough. It looks pretty good, but the handling is just out of this world. It's so smooth it has this wonderful big uh focus tab on the bottom and it feels kind of similar to the um like first generation like uh summicrons and, and 35 2.8 summeron so it's like this big yeah. you know uh brass focus tab that's just a joy to use it's super smooth uh the aperture clicks are wonderful the lens itself came with uh an external viewfinder and uh this ridiculously large hood which I never use, um, but it's about half the the length of my next favorite twenty eight millimeter, which is the Zeiss ZM. Um, so it's super compact, and I, I just love this lens. How long have you had that lens? Just out of interest, I have had it for quite a while. I think it's the first twenty eight millimeter lens I bought um, for Leica M mount, well LTM, because I was out hunting, um, looking for. I was actually looking for a Canon twenty eight millimeter lens. Uh, but 28 millimeter lenses are hard to come by in rangefinder mount. So I had a short list of the Canon and uh, or the Avenon or Cobalux 28 millimeter 3.5. Um, and basically, like I had tried and owned at some point after the Ricoh that like a, a, a spherical lens, uh, 28 2.8 Elmerit, but I didn't really like it. So so anyway, I've had this Ricoh for quite a while, and when I got it, I was at a shop where they had one on display for a really good price. And I asked the guy at the shop, like, how come this is so cheap? Like, what's wrong with it? And he said, okay, it doesn't have the original lens cap and it doesn't have the original <laughs> viewfinder. So, like, collectors wow. don't want this. And he told me that his boss uh, had basically started another business and was, like, neglecting the lens sale business. So his boss had taken this Ricoh GR lens with him to Shanghai um, to play with for a couple of weeks. And the guy who was actually running the shop day to day 
was begging him to give him the lens back so that he could sell it. <laughs> uh, so he had just gotten it back and then put it up at a discount. And I, I happened to wow. uh, see it. And then I checked the lens and I pretty much bought it on the spot because it was almost half the price that they go for these days. And it's like in pretty much excellent condition. Yeah. The the reason why I, I, I asked that question is because it's uh, I, there was a post uh, uh, that Bellamy did on um, Japan, uh, Japan, uh, Japan Camera Hunter uh, back in February this year. Um, that, and that was actually the first time I'd actually seen this lens. Uh, I, mm. I knew I had no knowledge of it uh, be, be, before that point, and I, I think I've put a post up in the uh, Photography with Classic Lenses Facebook group about it. Yeah, was, I saw that. Yeah, I was just wondering if that was actually uh, if that was the trigger uh, that got you there, but uh, but no, you 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 were already aware of the lens before that point. Yeah, I think I think I started raving because um, a, a bunch of people were criticizing like the side by side comparisons in that post in that thread. I think I, I came to the lens's defense because it is the best handling. I think maybe the best handling lens I have, period. It's just a joy to use. Um, yeah. And, and you know, uh, it also, because it's, it's even though it's an LTM lens, it focuses down to 0 0.7 meters. Um, whereas most LTM lenses, they only focus down to one meter. Uh, the Zeiss focuses down to half a meter, but like, it's just, it's a nice to have with the, the newer Lycos that'll focus a bit closer. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, fo close focusing with rangefinders is not not really that high on the priority list, is it really? No, no. Although I have a cool pro tip um, for anyone who's using Leica M rangefinders and the lenses that can focus uh, closer than the lens will couple. Um, so there's the ZM28 Biogon. I think the Voigtlander 21mm f4 color scope are and one of the Leica 21mm uh, super angulons. Basically, these lenses will focus down to 0.5 meters, but they stop coupling at 0.7 meters. Mm -hmm. So the trick I found, which is, honestly, it's a really stupid trick, but it works, is if you put the lens at 0.5 meters, then if you put your subject in the middle of the rangefinder patch and the double image of the subject right at the edge of the rangefinder patch, it will be perfectly in focus. I'm trying to visualize that one. Do you, want, do you want to just repeat what you've just said there? Yeah. So, you know, normally when you focus with a rangefinder, you get the double image to overlap. Mm. Right? Yeah. But on a Leica M, you've got the patch in the middle, and closer than 0 0.7 meters, it, it the patch won't move anymore. Yeah. So that entire range from 0 0.7 to 0 0.5, basically nothing's moving. But if you move your body back and forth, you'll see the double image move, right? Yeah. So basically, the parallax difference um, at 0 0.5 meters is exactly the distance between the middle of the rangefinder patch and the edge of the rangefinder patch on an LTA, uh, on a Leica M. So like if I'm focusing on your eye, yeah, if I put your pupil in the middle of the rangefinder patch, and then I put the other pupil, like the double image of the pupil, right on the edge where the rectangle ends, then it'll be perfectly in focus at 0 0.5 meters. I mean, there's uh, there's 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 another the the other pro tip, of course, is um, uh, <laughs> and and yes, it's not it's not taking a take measure with you, but uh, I it, it's only just come into my head because I was listening through uh, one of the older episodes of um, Negative Positive uh, com, um, uh, podcast, and uh, uh, friends of the show Ian Fleming 
uh, did a call-in camera review of the XA4 Macro. And uh, in that, he, he talked about the, the, the camera. And when it was first sold, uh, the, the strap that came with it uh, just happened mm. to be it would happen to measure i think it had two settings on the camera as well actually uh, and on on the on the strap but if you put the camera a certain distance uh, sorry you put the strap on the subject and move the camera to a certain distance away uh, you could therefore measure uh, the two macro settings um, on the lens which was quite a neat little trick really so and you could there's yeah, nothing yeah. stopping you from doing that uh, with 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 any any camera of, of that of that nature as long as you uh, get it get it calibrated first I think Johnny and I have had a conversation about this. Um, and I actually sent an email to Bob Roloni uh, a while back asking him about the Nikkor uh, sonar copies because they both have this like decoupling thing where you can focus down to like 0.45 or 0.3 meters. Yeah. So I asked Bob, like, what, what's the point of this? How are you supposed to focus this um, back in the day? And in our digging, we f- <laughs> found this like, Accessory from Leica, um, which has this ridiculous acronym that I can't remember. But it was basically like these three spikes sticking out of the front of the lens. And the picture that Leica uses to illustrate this is basically this dude holding a, a camera and a cat on the other end. And he has these like spikes coming out of his camera, like touching the cat. And the cat just has this expression of, get away from me. On <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the the I think we talked about this in the past too. Is the um the, there are a lot of there are a lot of implementations of that of this really easy, simple, rudimentary measuring system. But the the strap for the Minox has little little beads, little balls on it that correspond to I think distances and f stops on the camera. So that you know the idea is you hold the strap to the, you know, the secret documents that you're photographing without anyone's knowledge, uh, doing your 007 work and, and your focus would be correct. So same kind of idea. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, any, any more on the, on the GR 28 2.8 or shall we, should we move on to our next lens? Uh, yeah, I think that's all I got on, on that lens. It's super nice. Okay. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a sweet lens and, uh, it will fit nicely in your small camera bag that you brought along with you. So, uh, mm-hmm. what's uh, what's lens number two? Oh, okay, lens number two. Oh, I missed my short list. Um, this is thirty-five millimeter. This was so hard because thirty-five millimeter is my favorite focal length. Uh, I I have so many thirty-five millimeter lenses, and I love them all. Um, and uh, so. <laughs> I just crossed these out before the show. That's why I'm like looking at the ones I've crossed out. So the one that I've gone for is um, the lens that I use the most. Uh, it's not my best rendering 35 millimeter lens. I think that honor goes to the 35 2.8 Biogon, which if anyone out there is looking for a 35 mil, that's like optically flawless. Um, okay. The lens I've picked is the 35 millimeter uh, Leica Summicron version 4. So this is the version that came right before the Aspherical. Uh, it was made from 1979 for, for a number of years after that. And I think the, the one that I have uh, was made in the late 80s. And of the Simicrons, um, I've tried most of them. And there are a couple of versions. Like the version one is heavy and all brass. 
Uh, it's super expensive and it has eight elements. Version two and three have six elements and they were part of the era where Leica's design philosophy was basically edging more towards contrast than uh, resolving power. And the version four is the seven element version. So this lens is the lens that I use more than any other. It, it, it lives on my Leica M6 and I could shoot this combination basically for the rest of my life um, without, without, you know, being, feeling the need for any other lens. It's tiny. It weighs like a hundred something grams. Um, it, it barely sticks out of the camera, but the handling is really nice. It has a, a focus tab that is, I think, perfect size because I had the spherical and that lens was a little large um, on my M6 and the handling was really nice, but not, it's a different kind of smoothness. So like when, when I focus on this version four, it feels perfect, but the spherical, when I would try to make little adjustments, I, it almost felt like it was too smooth and, and the slightest pressure would sort of jerk the focus a little bit. Um, and unlike the version three, which I also used to have the focus throw for the version four is basically 90 degrees at the bottom. And it goes from like, uh, four o'clock to eight o'clock, which is perfect because the version three, there's a much longer focus throw. It goes from four o'clock to about nine o'clock or 10 o'clock, uh, which isn't as good for focusing quickly. Um, now this lens also like I, I have a lot of Leica bodies, but I don't really love the Leica lenses uh, that I've tried. This one, it has a really weird nickname. Um, and this lens, for some reason, is is nicknamed the King of Bokeh. And I have no idea why it's called that uh, or where it got that nickname from. I read it somewhere, but I totally forgot because I thought that's stupid. Uh, the Bokeh is no good. It's not good on this lens. Like, don't buy this lens because it's called the King of Bokeh. Buy it because it handles beautifully, um, and it's it's pretty sharp, and it has it has a fair bit of character. You know, it it definitely has more of that uh, vintagey rendering compared to the newest spherical lens. I mean, when they say King of Boca, it, it doesn't mean it's the great King of Boca. It could be the rubbish King of Boca, couldn't it? And just the other bit just dropped off at the front. Uh, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> 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 okay yeah well i'm not going to try and explain that one but um uh, um i mean it's it's certainly a case where in back back in the old days uh of the internet you know six seven plus years ago uh when when people used to when people would go onto the internet and there'll be very few articles or bits of information and somebody would do some blog posts about certain lenses and uh i, I can still remember going back you know, a number of years ago, uh, looking, well, what's, what's the best 50 millimeter lens? And there were quite a few, uh, blog posts out there, uh, that give this like top 10 of best 50 millimeter lenses. And there's all, there's all, all sorts in there. And, and really it's almost as if like, because of that, um, or a couple of these, these, these blog posts, um, some lenses have, have gained some kind of legendary status. And it was one mm. person's opinion in a in a time where uh, one person's opinion could be heard by a lot of people. Whereas now somebody can say something and it'll never be heard or just be heard by a select few. Well, back then it's like watching, like 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 on television. Certainly in the UK, uh, about say thirty years ago, there were there were three three channels, maybe four. And uh, so if you were famous on television, 
back then, <laughs> you're still probably quite famous now because everybody knew who you were. Whereas now you can go onto television and nobody would know who you were uh, because there's just there's much more of an outlet. And I think the same applies with, uh, with, with, with some of these lenses. And if somebody called it King of Boca uh, back you know, 10 years ago or something like that. That's probably where it, where it came from. And it was just somebody had a, a good experience with that lens and, uh, and, and it just stuck from that day onwards. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty accurate. I think it all originates back to one magazine article or internet post um, giving it this nickname. But the, the reason I think this lens is the, the sweet spot of Leica 35s is you know, at, when you're in this price, like it's not a cheap lens. When you're in this price range, uh, you're paying a lot extra for little incremental improvements. And I remember going to see a talk by a Magnum photographer from Taiwan a couple months ago. And uh, he was, someone in the audience asked him um, about his Leica because he, he also had a Leica with this lens. And... The question was kind of it was kind of obnoxious. It was clearly from one of these people who like had a Leica and was like showing it off like a luxury item as opposed to actually using it to shoot. <laughs> but the, the the photographer he replied kind of dryly, but he was like, I, "I don't care about the Leica brand. It's just they don't make lenses like this anymore, um, and I I have it because I want to use this lens, the thirty five f uh, version four, because they keep getting bigger." Like the spherical that came after the version four Cron is significantly larger. And then they reworked that to the newest version of the 35 millimeter F2 Simicron, which is the same size as the previous spherical, but the hood is like double the size. And so, you know, part of the joy of shooting uh, with these cameras for me is they're so small and they're so uh, easy to fit in my bag. So the newest version with the hood on is. I swear, like more than double the length, which to me defeats the purpose. Right then, uh, last lens in your collection. Uh, what's it to be? Fifty millimeter. This was almost as hard as thirty-five because uh, there are so many lenses in fifty millimeter that are great. Um, but I lied last time I was on the show because when you mentioned the, uh, the desert island, I said the one lens I'm definitely bringing is the ZM Sonar. Um, I'm not bringing that, even though it's my favorite 50. Uh, I'm also not bringing the top core, uh, even though I told Johnny I would bring that. You're, you're doing the short list now, aren't you? <laughs> no. Um, this took me so long. This took me so long. Uh, the lens I'm bringing is the Canon 50mm f1.5. Oh, unexpected, Perigee. <laughs> yeah, that, that got me as well. <laughs> And the reason why I've chosen this lens is because, for a number of reasons. Number one, I love sonar lenses. Um, and, you know, the ZM is great, but it's a little modern. Uh, so the Canon was made in the 1950s. After the war, there was this entire era where, because all of the German patents had expired, uh, a lot of the Japanese camera and lens manufacturers were either copying or experimenting with the German patents, uh, the German lens designs. So there are a number of Japanese sonar copies. There's the Nikkor, which I have. Um, there's like the Tanaka Tanar. Um, there's, I mean, there's all kinds, right? But of all the vintage sonar copies I have, this one is the one that I like the best. And it's hard to put my finger on why, because I hate infinity locks. And this lens has an infinity lock. 
I don't like long, long focus throws, and this lens has a ridiculously long focus throw. But the results are fantastic. I mean, uh, I have had all of the common 50 millimeter Canon LTMs, like the 1.8, the 1.4, the 1.2. Um, and this looks nothing like any of them. So it has that distinctive sonar look, but it looks quite different from the Zeiss version. So I don't know how they tweak the formula or if they're using different glass. But the Canon, basically wide open, it has that soft-ish sonar glow, uh, not to the same extent as the Nikkor, which I think is a little overdone. Once you stop this lens down to f2, then it starts to pop like crazy. And when it's at f2.8 and f4, it's insanely sharp as well, which is not what I expected when I bought this lens. Um, because even my Zeiss ZM sonar, it, it's not that sharp when you stop it down. That's not the strong point of that lens. But this lens is really sharp when you stop it down. The thing that surprised me the most about this lens, though, uh, was the color rendering. Because... I am not the biggest fan of Canon LTM color rendering. I love those lenses uh, for black and white, but this is gorgeous in color on film, on digital. Uh, it's it's nice in black and white as well, and it's one of those shots. It's one of those lenses where I, I use it for like close-ups of people, you know, for portraits um, or for tighter shots. And I mean, like if you have a Canon fifty one point four LTM. You know, you might be sitting there thinking, well, what's the point of the 1.5? Because the 1.4 is sharper and it's more, you know, uh, consistent. But it's it's a completely different look. This lens is amazing. If you haven't tried it, you must try it. It's so good. And it's not too expensive, you know. The Summicron it, that I mentioned for my 35, that's 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 the most expensive lens I own. It's it's ridiculously priced. Um, but the Canon can be had for a couple hundred bucks, you know. And if you want something that has a vintage look, but... The images really just, you know, they make me feel good every time I look at them. And that's why I'm bringing this lens. I, I, I must admit, I've never even heard of this lens uh, before you just mentioned it there. So when you when you said one, because I was thinking, okay, which which 50 millimeter is it? And you've already mentioned you know, the 1.2, the 1.4, the 1.8, I thought. No, the 1.5. And uh, I... <laughs> And I was thinking, yeah, is that Sonor? And uh, and obviously, yes, it, obviously is. it is. And yeah. um, and and then I went quiet and uh, did the Carl thing and went onto eBay <laughs> and thinking, you know, uh, it's it's a few hours before this this podcast is going to go out. So if there's one cheap on there at the moment, I need to get there like now. And uh, there's only one on there at the moment I can find. Uh, where is it? Uh, it's in Australia at the moment. Um, and just actually, just where in Australia, oh, Victoria, Australia. So uh, it's not it's not one of Cheyenne's, um, <laughs> um, but that's on at uh, well in pounds at least. It's on at uh, seven hundred and seven pounds. So you're talking like you know, a nine hundred dollar lens there. Yeah, that that I Perry, I, I think maybe in your part of the world they might still be obtainable, uh, probably in person cheaper. But that that's eBay wise, th those things have gotten really pricey. I got mine not too long ago for 2100 Hong Kong dollars which divide by 10 to get pounds is 210 pounds. Wow. Yeah. I, 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 
I, I think, Perry, when you see the next one at that price, um, would you get in touch with me, please? <laughs> sure. Yeah, you know, uh, it, here we go again. Perry, it's interesting. You, so I, I've, it's, this is one of those lenses that there's a lot of opinions. I mean, well, there's yes. one of those lenses. All of them, there's a lot of opinions. But, but this one, I mean, you know, you look at a lot of comparisons of classic sonar 1.5s, and Many, many people will tell you that this is the weakest of the bunch, that you compare all of them together and the Canon is, you know, it doesn't have the sharpness of the Nikon or it doesn't have this of that one or it doesn't have this of that. But, you know, you, you're, you have very much the opposite opinion. And, what, and I think that what you've said about the color rendering is very interesting about this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because I, so I, I think we've talked about this too. I'm a big fan of... The Canon LTM stuff. I know that, you know, the fifty, you know, one point two and the one point eight for me are the probably the two I use the most. Um, and this one's always been something I've been interested in, but isn't it? It never felt like a lens I really, really just had to have, you know. Um, but I think that you're you're hearing your opinion on this is is a, a definitely an eye opener for me about. Um, whether or not I want to add it to my collection and, you know, I, whether or not I need to outbid Simon on the next one that shows up. <laughs> well, I know uh, Hamish just got one and the sample <laughs> pics he sent me look really good. Um, I have the Nikkor and there are a few comparisons online. Yeah. Um, but, but definitely the Canon is sharper wide open uh, and it has, a, has less of that glow. Um, the, I've also had the Jupiter 3, yeah, uh, which is quite nice, but the Canon, when you stop it down, is is a little more contrasty. But I think one of the fun things about sonar lenses is how different they look wide open versus stop down like a stop. Yeah. It's almost like having oh. sort of three or four different lenses in one. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I really like about this lens because wide open, I get one look, uh, which granted I don't use that much. Um, f two is nice, but at f four, this lens blows my mind. Yeah, and that's always been a Simon uh, going way, 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 way back in a time on the podcast. Si- Simon, you always used to say it's like having three lenses in one. Yeah, that that is going a long way back. That's a good good, good memory <laughs> there. Uh, I I remember uh, reading an article about. I'm just trying to remember if it was. I think it was the 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 uh, the Zeiss Opton Sonar, um, mm-hmm. which is effectively the same lens um, or similar, well, the same same formulation of lens and i can remember reading where they would uh there was like a a manual uh back in the day and it would give you it would tell you the type of photograph you would get for a given aperture and Mm -hmm. they were pretty much say and and i think part of it was saying like you know you want a planar if you want you know a good classic well corrected shot um the sonars were more aimed towards um uh, being a bit more flattering uh, on on portraits and things, uh, but they would also say that really, you know, they, I can't remember the exact wording now, but it was almost to the point of if you want your your sonar shot, your fifty mil one point five sonar shot to be sharp, uh, you want to be shooting at f eight um, is where it, it actually becomes you know a proper serious sharp lens, and anything that entered under that, it's it's pretty much the artistic uh, the artistic member of the family. Yeah, well, the Opton, uh, I have that lens too, and it, it's not, I mean, I really like it, but yeah, I, I can see how that description applies to the Opton. 
Um, but the thing with, you know, these vintage lenses is in terms of if you went and did like objective measurements of the Canon's performance, yeah, it, it probably falls short on a lot of those, but it's what that overall look gives you, right? Mm. And I have a handful of lenses that, you know, most of which were on my short list that you didn't let me talk about. Uh, but, I, you know, I have a handful of lenses that when I shoot with them, they, they produce a look that just makes me go, oh, man, that's so gorgeous. This is one of them. Um, and of all the classic sonars I have, and I have loads, this is this is the one. Yeah. I love this lens. It's fantastic. And this, this, this and definitely. Sorry. No, I was going to say it's heavy to it. It has heft to it. Yeah. I I think that's the, I think sonars are it's fair to say they they they're the most popular lens um formulation that, that we talk about on the show. Uh I I think if you're a, a classic lens lover which pretty much means you you like things not to be particularly sterile uh then chances are you're a, you're a sonar fan uh, because that's exactly what you get they're not particularly well corrected and it's that lack of correction in in general apart from like the very very latest things uh, that that just gives the lenses that you so your 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 pictures a, a, a special look that is just different from everybody else's getting with your incredibly well corrected modern glass yeah and not to get too technical but i think it's the slightly under or not slightly but the undercorrected spherical aberration in sonar lenses yeah um that helps sort of accentuate that overall look and and everyone is going to have different tastes right when you're talking about lenses that are are essentially sought after because of their imperfections like what i like in a classic sonar it may well be someone else's uh not to someone else's liking so people who prefer the nikkor i totally get it i have that lens is sweet um, this is the one that, that sings for me, though. Yeah. When you, when you say the Nikkor, are you talking about the 1.5 or the 1.4? Uh, well, 1.4, yeah. The yeah. 1.5 is pretty rare, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had the I had the, 1. the 1.4, and I actually, I, I think I kept uh, my my best at the time, Jupiter 3, over over the Nikkor. There was just something that I just... Just yeah. preferred my my Jupiter three to the to the to the nickel um, and yeah yeah I think I have both of those and I I think I like the Jupiter three better as well yeah I mean you again though with interesting enough actually Jupiter threes I mean we talk about sample variation I haven't mentioned those words for quite quite a while uh, but we do talk about sample variation especially when we talk about uh, Soviet lenses but of all the the the, the the uh, lens uh, formula uh, that we that we talk about the these these sonar lenses, especially the the fifty one point fives or one point fours, when 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 they are a sonar formulation, they they do vary from from lens to lens more than more than most. And I, I mean, I've had quite a, a large number of Jupiter threes, and actually, they you know, by Soviet standards, they're relatively consistent in in, in my experience. Whereas uh, I've had a few. Uh, Zeiss lenses, whether they be the uh, earlier Jena lenses or or the uh, later Opton lenses, and I've actually seen more of a variation between uh, the the Zeiss lenses than I have with the um, with the, with the Soviet lenses. But yeah, they do. You, it's it's very difficult to say that you know a a Zeiss lens is better than a Jupiter three or or the Nikkor or the or the or the Canon because it just depends on which one you've picked up as well, doesn't it? Really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, as far as 50s go, uh, I, I think this one, you know, I've sold like I sold my version one Simicron. I sold my version four Simicron. 
I just sold my version two Simulux. Um, I think this lens, the top core and the, the ZM Sonar are the three that I'm not going to sell because I, I like wow. them so much. So that was my short list, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> he got it in there. <laughs> it's, 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 it's funny because uh, when you were uh, certainly when you were talking about that uh, that that Canon lens there, and, uh, and Johnny and I were both listening, and we were sort of both falling in love with this lens, and uh, <laughs> hence hence why I went onto eBay there, and I was thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm having a Carl Havens moment here. <laughs> that's, that's what it used to be like for him, and I'm experiencing it myself now. So uh, yeah, I was dreaming then. <laughs> Yeah, I'll send you guys some pictures afterwards so you can see see sort of what it looks like. Yeah, no, that, 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 that'd be great. Okay, now then, that you've done uh, the three lenses that are in your collection, and now uh, you can pick a lens that you don't own and you would, you would like to have with you. So what, what is this lens? And there's no, there's no restriction on this lens whatsoever. Okay, this was fun. This was a lot of fun. Um, so this was also hard because I had, a, a, again, a really long short list. The lens I have gone for uh, is from your neck of the woods, Simon. It is the Taylor Hobson two-inch F2 Anastigmat collapsible LTM lens. Mm. Okay, so should I just talk about this, or do yeah, you guys want yeah, to, no, like, I know very little about it, other than I want one, of course. But you know, <laughs> uh, it is a very expensive lens. Um, there was one for sale in Hong Kong. Uh, that I've seen recently at a shop Photopia that I like to go to a lot. They sent me an email last night that they were having a uh, like end of spring clearance sale. Um, and they had one of these lenses on their sale list. Now, if you look on eBay, the ones that are for sale are almost all in the UK. They are expensive. They go for like 1,900 pounds. Um, the one at Photopia, they reduced the price by about 500 US dollars. And I was looking at this email going, oh my God, I want that, but I need to talk about this lens on the podcast as the lens that I do not have uh, that I'm bringing to the island. So I, I, I held, held firm. I wake up this morning, I check the website, it's gone. No! <laughs> it sold for about 1,300 pounds. Okay, so this lens... This lens was made in the 1950s. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when. It is a collapsible lens. Um, and it is a biotar design. So because I can't bring the top core, uh, this is my way of kind of smuggling it in. Um, you know, the English lenses have really gone up in price, but the photos that I've seen from this have that same look that the top core has possibly with a bit more contrast. Uh, the 3D pop is out of this world. Um, it's sharp as hell. It has that swirly bokeh that's not too obnoxious and in your face. Um, and I mean, it's collapsible, so it's extra compact. It'll, it'll fit into my small camera bag. And I mean, what else is there to say? It's just, it's one of those lenses that I will never buy because the price to what I get makes no sense. But it's fantastic. Oh, also, uh, before Johnny um, got his top core, I, I posted um, some stuff with uh, pictures from the top core saying, yeah, this is my secret lens that I can't talk about because Johnny and Hamish and I are colluding to get them copies. And then people started guessing uh, what the secret lens was. 
And I think Mike Novak guessed like 800 different lenses. Um, <laughs> but one guy guessed this lens and it was such a good guess because it has a lot of the qualities of the top core minus the handling uh but yeah i mean wow what a lens i want it i'm just just looking at uh, a couple of them on on ebay at the moment and as, as you say yeah two two thousand pounds seems to be the going rate for it um it's lovely it's a it's a it's a gorgeous looking lens, uh, and it's um, it looks like yeah. It, as the description goes here, it's also by uh, by Reed or there is a Reed mm-hmm. camera, isn't there? If I remember right. Yes, and the lens cap says Reed. Yeah. So it's not marked as a Taylor Hobson Cook. Uh, I'm not sure what the history of that brand and its lineage is, but you know they're obviously the Taylor Hobson Cooks, um, the Cook lenses. But this one is just marked Taylor Hobson. And then read on the lens cap. Yeah, well, t- t- Taylor Hobson, or, or rather the original name for, I'm not sure about original name, but certainly uh, back at, in the 1900s or maybe a little bit before, the lenses were marked up as Taylor, Taylor Hobson, so TTH. Yes, um, yeah. Because uh, the original Leica Xenar, uh, oh, there right. was a Leica Xenon that had a Taylor, a, Taylor Hobson because they yeah, borrowed I, the design. I, um, I saw one of those lenses in person once and had the chance to buy one um on a camera that had been stored in <laughs> on a on a canon or i sorry on a nikon ltm camera that had been stored in someone's basement for about 50 years and the lens was all hazy and the camera didn't work and i was like yeah i could get this for 600 dollars, but i'm just gonna pass oh, <laughs> but i mean it was like it you know it was gonna take restoration work that i mm-hmm. never would have been able to afford so i didn't feel that bad about it and i did yeah, tell the guy i'm like if you're gonna sell this you even in this condition you need to get like fifteen hundred dollars just d- yeah. just don't even don't let anybody like screw you on the price just hold firm and do it and i hope he did because yeah that's a super rare lens <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, it's not just the rarity, you know. There are a lot of these old lenses that go for crazy prices where yeah, the, yeah. the results are questionable. But right. for this Taylor Hobson, like, it's worth looking up the photo shot with it because that's what drew me to this lens. I saw the pictures and I was like, "Whoa!" Yeah. And then I and then I looked at the lens. I was like, "Oh, it's kind of expensive, but let's put it on the list." <laughs> I don't know if anyone in the group has ever posted a shot with this specific lens, but if anyone who's listening has one, please share pictures. They look really good. Oh, yeah. gonna, I'll do a quick search. Uh, so I'll just put Taylor in there. Um, let's see what I'm going to... Oh, no. I forgot. Uh, okay, let's put Hobson in there as well then. Well, we've got something with a, a Seritel 1-inch, uh, 1.9. Uh, yeah, I think I've searched the group, and, and there are some Taylor Hobson lenses, but I don't know if I've seen this specific one, yeah. uh, other than some post yeah, from like maybe it, a long time ago from a dude in Hong Kong. Yeah, Somebody cool. might have posted some early uh, 5CM light Zenon photos, which would be, you know, close. But I don't know if we've yeah, seen quite, quite a few Cook, Cook lenses in there as well. I yeah. think I think uh, I'm pretty sure uh, Taylor Hobson took Cook over. I think uh, because you can still buy Cook lenses now, made by uh, mm-hmm. Taylor Hobson. So uh, did you ever go to the uh, Cook factory tour? Uh, not yet. Uh, that's still on the list of things to do, though. So uh, that that will happen. Hopefully, we'll do that this year. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm not seeing any. Uh, I'm not seeing any from that lens. Um, 
But it's a rare lens, so I mean, what do you expect, really? But, uh, yeah. Yeah, plenty from, like, there's a, from, like, there uh, must be, like, C-mount lenses and things like that, uh, but not uh, not that Yeah, they have a lot of those. Yeah. No, I'll keep, I'll keep an eye out for that. Um, so that looks, uh, that looks really good. All right. So uh, I think we've kind of wrapped up Desert Island. Um, do we want to talk about some new acquisitions or other other business? I know Perry, you've got you've got some other new acquisitions that I know about from various sources. Yeah, that maybe we could talk about. Okay, uh, I have one new lens uh, that almost made it to my shortlist because it's the lens du jour. Um, so a little bit of backstory on this lens before I talk about it. Uh, this chat group that we have, me, Johnny, and Hamish, we were going back to the beginning of the episode when we were talking about the, the Heliar. Um, so we, we were looking for Heliar rangefinder lenses that had better handling than the Voigtlander. And Hamish mentioned that the lenses made by, a couple of the lenses made by Chioko, uh, which I think was the predecessor to Minolta, yeah. were Heliar design lenses, specifically the 50mm f2.8 and the 45mm f2.8. So uh, with this in mind, I was uh, browsing one of the local camera shops in Hong Kong, one, one that's been there for 30 years, and I just want to give these guys a bit of a shout-out because it's a shame. They're going out of business in September because their rent is getting hiked up. Uh, ah. They're called Sunrise Photo, and they have some of the most exotic uh, selection of lenses out there. Um, like if you're going to find a top core anywhere in Hong Kong, this this is where it's going to be. So I was there. Um, I was specifically looking to buy one of the cameras that they had listed online, but uh, someone picked that up already. And right in the corner, I see this Chioko 45mm f2.8. So I picked it up because it was a really, really good price and in fantastic condition. So um, turns out that the lens is not a Heliar. I had this long discussion with Cheyenne Morrison somehow. He, he like messaged me out of the blue and he used his magical Googling powers uh, to find a lens diagram. And it's, it's not a Heliar. It's a five-element, three-group lens with a really weird, unique design. So it, it's kind of like a, a cook triplet with three elements in the front group and then one in the middle and one at the back. So it's not a Tessar. Uh, it's not a Heliar. It's something else. So the Chioko 45mm 2.8 is super, super compact. It's like a pancake lens. It has this weird, giant, scalloped focus ring with a focus tab at the bottom with uh, no infinity lock. So the handling is really nice. And I bought this lens because Hamish said it was a Heliar. And when I brought it home and I was playing with it, uh, I was not expecting much. I thought, okay, this lens didn't cost uh, an arm and a leg. It's, it's weird. It's small. It's super cool. Um, <laughs> the, the results, like it's very sharp in the middle. Uh, it has a wonderful, wonderful 3D rendering, which is accentuated by some of the swirliest bokeh you'll ever see on a 2.8 lens. I mean, it's far swirlier than the um, top core Biotar. And it is a lens that I, first of all, I shot a bunch of photos to like play around with that effect, that sort of 3D swirly bokeh effect, and it looks cool. But then I also took it out uh, and I've been basically using it nonstop as a general purpose lens because 45 millimeters is kind of fun on a rangefinder because basically it lets me frame just outside of the 50 millimeter frame line. Um, yeah, I've been getting some pretty good shots with it, but like it's 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 one of those sleeper lenses that it would never have occurred to me to purchase it. 
uh, had Hamish not been wrong about it being a helium. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah I, that's much. It's 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 an interesting lens. I um I saw one in person at the shop. I want to say, uh, not I guess it was last summer. Somebody brought one in, and it's tiny. I mean, it it's is so small. It's tiny. It's tiny, and it really caught my interest because it was tiny. Um, and and they yeah they're not super common. They do turn up once in a while, even here domestically in the U.S. But yeah, that's such a neat little lens. I'm glad you glad you picked one up. And the amazing thing is, like, even though it's so small, the handling is shockingly good because the focus tab is uh, in a nice place. And then the big scalloped ring means you always have something nice to grip. Nice. Um, yeah. Unlike, you know, there are some really thin rangefinder lenses like the uh, MS Optical Apoqualia 28mm, which is basically like a lens cap, right? You can't, it's really hard to actually um, use in, in the field. But yeah, this is a fun lens. Oh, and, and when I was talking to Cheyenne, um, I don't know, I, you know, this is the first time I spoke with him on on uh, Messenger, but I don't know if he has this reaction to every lens, but he went and looked at some pictures shot with a Chioko, and, like, his jaw dropped. He was like, these are so nice. <laughs> you know, every now and then you buy a lens and you don't expect very much, and then you shoot with it, and it's like, whoa, this is super nice. I was expecting, like, rubbish, or, or at least, you know, a, an average um vanilla lens but yeah. yeah i have a i have a shoot coming up um next sunday i a friend of mine asked me to just shoot some photos of uh him and his family and they have this little baby girl and i think i'm going to use this chioko lens to get like some of those whimsical uh swirly effects around her yeah perfect yeah Good use. yeah all right so uh uh, any Simon? I mean, did you do you have anything new? I feel like you picked up. A, I don't know if did you tell us all the new things you picked up at the Photographica show? I, or I I didn't actually because there was there was two two things that I didn't mention. Um, I've mentioned on Facebook since, but or Instagram actually I think, uh, and that's it's not a lens. Uh, I I picked up a book that I've been chasing for a really long time. Uh, and it's the uh, Made in the USR, uh, USSR, which is the uh, the authentic guide to Russian and Soviet cameras, second edition uh, by Jean Loup Princel, and it's something that I see pop up every now and again. And it's it's like the it's the Soviet lens and camera bible uh, that just tells you about all the different versions that that, that are out there. And as as we know, there are absolutely shed loads of uh, variations of things so i've been after that for ages and um, while whilst i was i was on my on my table there where i mentioned last last week that we had uh, neil trulock uh, was assisting us and uh, he he yeah, when when we let him when we let him go after let, helping us set up uh, he, he came back at one point and goes uh, um, i'm not sure how we, how we uh, said it oh that was it um uh, Andy, who I was with, Andy Cottrell, he had a copy of this, and I was I was talking to him, saying, oh, "I wish I had that." You know, it's always always silly, silly expensive money, and um, I think Neil must have heard that, and then he he saw. Uh, I think three or four copies for sale, <laughs> still shrink wrapped, and they were going at twenty pounds each, and uh, and he came back and said, "Do you want one of those for twenty pounds?" And and uh, and he goes. Yes, of course I do, Def definitely. And uh, and I think I said to him, go back and see if you can get two two for thirty. 
and uh, and uh, he came back and he said he won't he won't he won't do it. he won't drop the price. I'm thinking, oh, right, fair enough. Twenty pounds is, is a fair price. But these things go for daft money on eBay. Um, wow. I mean, I've had these things turn up in physical auctions before now, and I think I bid up to about fifty pounds on on for a well thumbed copy, and I've managed to pick up a brand new one for twenty pounds. So I'm absolutely made up on that. Um, it's funny that they put the name, the word authentic in the title of that book. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah, not not the not the fake guide. No, the the, the real one. Um, um, and uh, I've got one other story I didn't didn't talk about last week, and it's something that's come up in in conversation today, actually, in in the Facebook group. And that's uh, uh, a was this yesterday? Yeah, no, it was, it was today. Um, uh, by uh, John R. Bruning, I think that's how you you, you say your, your your surname. Um, and he's referring to. Um, I did a, a series of uh, posts about getting ready for Photographica uh, and I put a few of the lenses and cameras and stuff that I was getting ready to to go with me on the previous day and it spotted that in one of the photographs there was a Steinheil uh, Macro Quinar um, 50mm f2.8 oh, yeah. uh, lens uh, in its box and looking very shiny and uh, it was just asking you know did it did it sell and the, the 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 quick answer is uh, no no it didn't sell and mainly because I I couldn't really quite make up my mind how much to sell it for and the the reason there was some difficulty in sell it well difficulty in pricing it uh, was that it's got some and I've, I think I mentioned this on a previous show it's got sample variation no, sample variation balsam separation and uh, and it was such that. Um, I'm sure I'm repeating myself now, but when I bought the lens, it didn't have uh, balsam separation. And when I got it home, it really had balsam separation in a big way. Um, the most noticeable uh, balsam separation I've ever seen. So uh, I wow. I've, I've decided that I'd put it into um, a specialist auction. So it's going to go into uh, Flint's auction. Not too sure when the date is, but that's a London auction. And uh, so uh, that's, that's where that one's going to go. But the... the Almost more interestingly, though, was was I discovered something about the lens that I didn't actually realise uh, because I, I was I was playing about with it and I was saying, yeah, it, it, it's a it's a macro lens, but I could also see that the markings it wasn't really getting down to the uh, to the um, higher magnification markings. I was thinking there's something something else going on with this lens, and I realised that it's it's got a two stage helicoid, which I've never seen before, and so you you would. Uh, actually, I say that I think sig some sigmas would do something like this as well. Um, some older those XC sigmas, but the idea was though that you you extend uh, the the helicoid out to its uh, what appears to be a minimum focus, and once it's reached that point, there's actually a second focus ring, and once you've gone to the full extent of the first focus ring, it then uncouples the second focus ring, and you turn that in the opposite direction. So you turn it wow. once and then turn it again. <laughs> Oh, that's cool. Oh, it yeah. is. And I was thinking, oh, that's another reason I don't want to sell this lens now, but it's got the focus, it's got the Bolson separation. But, um, <laughs> and it looks so nice. It's got the box. It looks, it's, I mean, the thing's mint, except for this hideous uh, separation that, that, that it's got. And I, I imagine somebody might boil it and uh, hopefully make it go away. But <laughs> oh, don't who, do who, that. Yeah, who, who knows? But I, I wasn't the person that was going to boil it. So uh, so so it's gone now. But this, this double helicoid focus mechanism it was great because if you and and you did have to have the, the one into the fully extended position before you could do the other one because if you were say halfway um opened up the the second extension you couldn't 
pull back the 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 first extension if that if that makes any sense you have to fully extend it the first one and then you can play with the second and then if you wanted to do the first one again you would have to retract the second extension and then wow. wind in the first and it was just a beautiful uh, method of uh, doing it i mean it's completely over-engineered and you think it does it really have to be like this um but wow it was that was really smart Wow. That's okay. a much more elegant solution uh, than like the Nikkor 51.4 and uh, 50F2 LTMs where you have to like break the lens to get it into its close focus zone. Oh. Yeah. Well, that, well, that's, yeah. I was going to say macro lenses. I, I, I like macro lenses, but they, there's, there's usually, always seems to be a compromise with macro lenses. Uh, but I think, yeah, perhaps they'll, they'll only go to one to two and you, you'd like them to go to one, one to one uh, magnification. Or the ones that do go to one to one just tend not to be as good as the ones that have the extension to get to one to one. The notable ones are like the, the Vivitar by um, Takina. Um, ninety two point five, which I've picked one up uh, relatively recently. It's still still being cleaned. Actually, I haven't I haven't seen it for a month. Um, but that was a that was a lens that I, I put onto the camera around about the same time I tried the uh, the Steinheil as well, actually. And I put the Steinheil on and I thought, yeah, yeah, it's a macro lens, and and I wasn't really seeing anything particularly interesting. And I put that um, that Vivitar Series One, uh, the one that goes to uh, it's two point five, so it only goes to one one to two. Um, but I don't know, wow, this does look good. And you can see where the, the reputation of the, the Bokina uh, comes from, because that's uh, sort of its nickname. I believe it's slightly different from the, the, the Tokina labeled one, but it's, you know, it's very, very similar lens. And, uh, and it was, it was lovely, but I'd say that's, that's, that Vivitar is that, that's uh, the 2.5 at least is only a one to one to two. Whereas the, there's the Comine or Comine, uh, um, which is a 2.8, which does go to one to one, and you've also got like the the Chiron, uh, the, uh, the 105 um, 2.8 that goes to one to one to one as well. But neither of those lenses have have the same look as the uh, is that is that Vivitar, which is a, it's just a shame. It's like everything you never seem to get the perfect lens. Um. Well, speaking of weird lenses, I did not get this one this week, but I, I do want to talk about it because I thought about getting it, but I, uh, uh, it, I but I, I didn't, and I'm not going to. But it's worth uh, putting out on the radar for other folks who might be interested in it. So we have at the uh, at the shop um, a bunch of odd uh, lenses for uh, exact amount and. Some of them are really nice. Some are really weird. And one that we've had on the shelf for a while that I've played with and been very curious about. Speaking of odd macro lenses, is the Novaflex Novaflexar 35 millimeter 3.5. And I've I've looked at this lens on the shelf and thought, wow, that's odd. It's a you know Novaflex macro lens. Um, uh, it must be unusual. Probably pretty good because they always build good stuff. And what I never realized is that this lens. Yeah, it thought of it, Simon, just now when you've been speaking about that, the odd helical on that lens. Um, this lens actually has built in, essentially built in uh, extension tubes. So you pull the lens barrel out and it has four stops <laughs> that extends the front of the lens out just as if you'd uh, put extension tubes on the lens. Uh, and it, 
it's yeah, it's totally odd. It's a totally bizarre thing. And I, it, it's one of those things where I looked at it many times and never even thought that it had that kind of capability because what lens does that, you know? So it's almost like if you think of like a, uh, a collapsible uh, rangefinder lens where you have to kind of pull the barrel out and lock it in. Same kind of idea, but this thing has like literally four click stops that are equivalent to, I don't know what exactly they're equivalent to, but it, it focuses very close, closer as you pull out each one of those stops. So another really odd, uh, oddly behaving lens that might be worth at least looking at if people want to see a lens that does something really unique. How long is it at full extension? Um, not very long. I mean, it, it basically even collapsed. It's a rather small lens, but, you know, kind of opened out all the way. Um, it's not as long as like a, uh, like a, uh, and it's, it's not like an SLR macro lens where that, you know, you you kind of twist the helical all the way out and it gets really quite long. It's not even, doesn't even extend out that far. Um, so if you look at pictures of it online, you'll you'll kind of see it, and it, it is it is hard to judge scale wise how large the lens gets. But even fully kind of stopped out, it doesn't it doesn't get very large. But yeah, it's an oddball. <laughs> I think I've had a I think I've had a no no Nova Flex or no Flexar or or something like that a, a long time ago. That I, I was yeah I was wondering if you might might be something you've come across. Yeah, but. but this this business about the how it extended out was it an obvious thing for you to do or did you have no, to do something weird? No, no, you to would it? you would have no idea that oh hey maybe I'll just pull the front of this lens and see what <laughs> I mean you would have no idea it does this and I had no idea it did this until I happened to come across a reference to it online um, and so and and I guess the weird thing is it's actually this lens uh, for whatever reason people do like UV photography with it because for, well, I don't know if it's the coatings or whatever, but it's apparently it has a, a, a an odd ability um, to be used for UV photography in a very unusual way, um, in a way that I really can't speak to because I'm no expert in this. Is it, but, is it UV or is it IR? No, it's a UV. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very, it's very, it's kind of a real oddball, rare sought after lens apparently. Um, which would that would make you think? Oh, I I should buy it, but it's just too it's too it's too weird for me. I just don't need it. Well, I think the lens that I had it may well have been the same. I, I, it was so long ago now. I can't I can't remember what it was. I I could just wow. remember looking at it, thinking there's something odd about this lens. And what yeah. is it? And I, I couldn't I couldn't I certainly didn't extend it in the way that you just described there. So uh, I missed a trick there by the sounds of it. Yeah, just everybody should take a look at it. It's a real, it's a real oddball. It's interesting. And speaking of oddball lenses that I did purchase this week, um, uh, so this this was a lens that had been on my radar kind of a long time ago and kind of fell off my radar. And then actually, there was a little chat about it happening in the uh, the chat room for the admins for um, photography with classic lenses, and it is the uh, Petri Oricore. Uh, CC, it's the 50 millimeter F2, which is an LTM lens. And the reason this lens exists is that in round about 1959, 1960, um, Petri introduced the Petri Penta SLR, which was their take on a, uh, M42 SLR camera. Now they had, they had been, you know, building a lot of range finders up until that time, which I, I've spoken about them at length. 
um, and I'm a, a big fan of that. But they're um, they're <laughs> Petri's SLR cameras have a bit of a reputation for being very problematic. Um, but this is the very first uh, SLR camera they ever did, and it's the only one they did. Well. The only one from that era that they did that was uh, M42. They did some other M42 cameras very late in uh, the company history, actually, as they were basically kind of going uh, into bankruptcy and so forth. But this is the very first camera that they introduced uh, in, in an SLR, and it looks um, shockingly similar to the rangefinders from that era because it's essentially they they just took – uh, all the components from the rangefinder cameras and uh, it kind of morphed it into an SLR. So it's a really, really odd camera. I mean, it's a strange camera. Everything about it is, uh, it's very like from the own, from their own drawing board. Um, it doesn't function like most other uh, SLRs from that area. Certainly not other um, M42 SLRs. So I was kind of intrigued with it. Um, I kind of bought it on a whim because I happened to see one as that conversation was going on uh, for cheap and took a chance on it. And it turns out that it's actually in really great condition. The lens is in great condition. Um, it did take me a minute to get film into this thing because the one thing that was not working on it is the uh, film take-up spool. There's a little piece of like uh, spring steel, I guess, in there that would hold the film leader in place. And that seems to have like rusted to the spindle so i was like trying to jam a leader into that take-up spool forever and i couldn't get it to go and i finally realized what was going on so i finally got the film to take up on the camera and um it's just an odd camera all the way around uh the, the every everything about it does not feel normal <laughs> so i'm Wait, is and, this weird green preset thing that you showed yeah me? yeah that's the one oh. Perry. yeah okay, okay so so Simon, Johnny was showing this to me in, in the chat we have with Hamish, and then he was trying to explain to me how the preset thing on this works. And he goes, oh, it's so intuitive. Here's how it works. And he, like, described it. And I'm sitting there reading this over and over going, I have no idea what this means. Show, show me. So he had to record a video to explain how this thing works because it, it's a very strange preset. It's an LTM lens? No, it's a, it's an M42 lens. M42. Yeah, it's an M42 lens, um, but it's it's an M42 preset in the way that I've never seen any other M42 preset. Yeah. I mean, first of all, the the preset and aperture rings are at the back of the mount, so closer to the camera body versus up on the front where they usually find them. Um, and the way the rings work, I mean, it's Simon. Uh, see if this makes any sense to you when he <laughs> explains it, because when he explained it to me, he said this is super intuitive. Well, it's. It, what I find intuitive about it is is some preset lenses, they basically have two rings with the, all the same you know, aperture numbers listed on them. So you end up with two rings with two sets of numbers that are duplicated and people are like, well, why does it have two sets of numbers? And it, you know, it can be confusing if you don't think about why they're there. It's meant to show you wh where exactly how far open your lens is 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 opened up at any given point um but i it can be confusing and what this lens does rather than follow that system is it has a red dot for for wide open and it has a green arrow for stop down and when you turn it stop down like the green arrow matches up with another tick little green tick mark mark on the aperture ring and and now they've kind of 
meshed up and it looks perfect and it's like oh okay real intuitive the lens is fully stopped down um and that probably sounds really confusing to anyone who no, hasn't no, seen that, it in that, person that, well, so no, that, that <laughs> sounds that sounds perfectly reasonable but it also sounds ex- i mean I may, I may be wrong but it's it sounds like exactly the method that they have on quite a few of the um third party uh cheaper uh yeah, japanese it, lenses it act- it actually is. It just looks different. It's it's the same method. It's just the way they've like basically indicated it on the on the lens barrel is sort of their own take on it. And I I, I think it's really clear because if the lens isn't stopped down all the way, you've got like these two green tick marks that don't match up. And once you have them matched up, it's like oh hey, it's completed the two parts of the tick mark. So to me, to be it's, fair, when you show me the video, it was it made total sense. And the yeah. thing that I did not get from the first picture you showed was that the green thing that you're talking about it splits in two and half right. of the green yeah exactly that happens on the preset ring and you have to line them up then it was like oh okay those two things move independently right so it's like when you see it in action it makes a lot of sense right but you look at a still photo it's like i don't get it but yeah you, you turn the ring and to me it makes a lot of sense so I just, I guess my, my thinking is about this Petri and I'm going to get so much crap for this at, at the shop because Petri SLRs are like a no go for pretty much everybody, myself included, but this is the very first thing they ever did. And to me, they, they went out of their way to like in-house engineer an M42 camera that was not really like anybody else's at that time. Um, well, really, you're just talking about Pentax at that time. But, well, that's not entirely true. But let's talk about the Japanese M42 stuff. So it, it's just so different than um, other SLRs that would have been out there at that time. And I give Petri a lot of credit for kind of thinking outside the box. And this one is very, very much outside the box. So I don't need another SLR for sure since I can't really focus with them anymore. (laughs) And I certainly don't need another M42, but this one is really intriguing to me and I've just started shooting it and it's, it's, it's very interesting to use. So I'm going to try to get through a roll of film and maybe get something and focus on it and share the results later. Um, But that's my, my very much kind of impulse purchase uh, new acquisition. (laughs) You, you you are turned into the Petri collector though, aren't you? So uh, oh, I hate it. Now? Yeah, I just I like to tell myself I'm not a collector, and it's such a lie. I I really got this thing because it it's so much like a SLR version of my favorite uh, fixed lens Petri um, rangefinder. That's totally why I got it. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that principle of uh, to, of going from a, a rangefinder into an SLR. I mean that's pretty much what. Uh, well, actually, several companies did it. I mean, the, 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 as we heard from Bob Rotoloni, that's the, the Nikon F was effectively, uh, well, it used... Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, very much. It, and that's kind of what it reminds me of is the yeah. same. It's like taking their, uh, their existing kind of chassis and other components and just adapting it to a new use. And I feel like that's kind of the same yeah. thought process here with the, with the Petri. It's just... I. There's a certain style to the way the lines are in this camera that I find particularly attractive. Um, so it looks to me, it's way more interesting to look at than uh, the original Nikon F. Yeah, the, um, the other camera I can think of that did that, that did that. I'm sure there are going to be more of them out there, and that's the uh, the Zenit. 
uh, with the like I think the Zenit 3M that kind of thing maybe a little bit yeah. older than that was it 3C it could be 3C might be thinking I mean there's, I'm sure there's probably going to be some other other versions there but you can just tell uh, that they are uh, Zorkies or Feds with a mirror box yeah yeah pretty much I mean that and that and I find I do find that stuff from that era that sort of very late 50s early 60s um, there's a lot of really interesting designs because everybody was trying to figure out their own way to do it without probably getting in trouble for patent and other stuff you know so it's yeah it's a it's a unique era in camera design and certainly petri was doing really unusual things at that era anyway so yeah i'm really taken with this thing it's very it's very interesting the, the viewfinder is not green right no, the viewfinder is not green, and actually, the the viewfinder, the focusing screen, it has that. Um, I've seen this in other cameras, and now I'm starting to think. Well, maybe but the trick for me to being able to focus with an SLR at this point is to change all the screens on all my cameras because it has that really large uh, central round spot that mm. everything is really out of focus. And yeah. yeah. Yeah, do you know what I'm ta talking about? It's like very kind of 3D looking. And until you well, get it it perfectly in focus, nothing really looks like it's in focus. So it's Yeah, but even on those it's not easy. Like um I mean, like can I talk about uh, uh briefly about an acquisition I made recently that's exactly like this? Yeah. Uh so uh, a couple of weeks ago I picked up a uh Mamiya 645 1000S. Oh. Um, with a uh prism finder. Yeah, and the reason I bought it was because of the lens it came with, um, which is the Mamiya eighty millimeter f one point nine, which is basically yeah. one of the fastest medium format lenses ever made. Right. Um, and I, I saw a video on YouTube where this guy was talking about how this lens was used to film like The Dark Knight and other movies, and it was like a way of um, sort of shooting medium format cinema on a budget. And I was like, oh, this video is getting loads of views. The price of this thing is going to go up. I want it because I want to shoot medium format sit still at night and this lens is fast yeah. so so i have it. it it's fantastic i mean it's just an amazing lens but i it's so difficult for me to focus this thing and it has exactly that like circle in the middle with the diagonal split image yeah um just supposed to make it easy and i think you know if i stop down the lens it's probably pretty easy to focus um but at f1.9 at even 645 it's the depth of field is like non-existent right right yeah, it's it is like that, um, and and I've seen other cameras that have that focusing screen, and I've always found them kind of interesting. Um, but it does is have it, a. Is that an uncommon focusing screen? It's I think it's a it's a less common focusing screen for most SLRs because most tended to default to a split prism. Um, or at least a micro prism around a center dot. And so uh -huh. I think it, it's a little less common. It's, um, but you do see them. And I've seen them. I, I've, I've even seen, uh, I've seen these in Spotmatics. So I mean, I, I know Spotmatic has that. Yeah. And, and I've, I've even seen that there, that uh, there's an Olympus OM screen. I think it's like a, the one four. I, I, so they're out there. It just seems to be a less common focusing screen because everybody kind of defaulted to the split prism. So I'm, I'm really kind of intrigued by this focusing screen now. And it's something I'm going to try to mess around with. I can tell though, that the diopter on this camera is just not right for my eye. I mean, no matter what I do, it's not really in focus, but it's, it, it, at least it's, it seems to, um, 
give more of a, a contrast between whether or not it is truly in focus, which I find I can't really see with a split prism anymore. And even when I do use a split prism and it says it's in focus, I kind of don't believe it is. Yeah. So I, so I, I think this might be a, um, an interesting experiment for me to see if I have any better luck, you know, focusing with it than I, I tend to have most days with SLRs at this point. Yeah, I feel like a lot of my SLRs actually have focusing screens like that. I, I'm pretty sure one of my alphas does. Yeah, um, that would make sense. Yeah, I could believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, the other thing, Perry, I was going to say that um, that Mamiya 645, I came very close to having that same camera um, within the past two weeks here. I there the, We've had one at Central Camera for a while, and it was sitting on the shelf. And the thing that really got my attention about it um, was that I had never – really seen well once before i had but it it had it has the uh, waist level finder on it and that camera is a completely different animal with the waist level finder because it's like t- 10 times brighter than the than the uh, prism so yeah if you i don't know if you have the waist level finder for it or if you've seen it but with the waist level finder but it's like a completely different experience and i know i've seen yeah. it um I've seen it before. I don't have it, but I've got the waist level finder on my Bronica S2. Okay, there um, you go. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I, I might try to find one of those because I know what you mean. Like the prism darkens it and, and it makes it smaller too. Yeah, I think it's totally worth it on that camera because I I basically brought my uh, RZ67 into the shop to trade for that camera. And lo and behold, the very day I bring my RZ in, some guy walks in and sees the Mamiya. He's like, oh, I'll take that. <laughs> and I, you know, what am I going to do? Not sell it to him because I want it for myself. Um, so I sold it to him and I'm like, well, shit. <laughs> 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 it just figures. So anyway, that, that's my, that's my long, my long story about, <laughs> about my new acquisition. Okay. Well, I think we need to start winding things down now. Um, Perry, uh, have you got any shout outs or anything like that? Anything anything else you might want to get off your chest? Um no, not 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 that I can think of. Okay. Okay. And uh Johnny, I think that's what you've been doing for the last ten minutes. Uh, Pretty much, got, yeah. Have, have you got just, any more? Uh no, I I don't I don't think so. Okay. All right. Well, not that let, I can re- recall anyway. Okay. Well let's uh let's bring things to an end then. So uh Perry, um <laughs> I don't think we've spoke about as many lenses or name checked as many lenses as we've done today, <laughs> ever. Well, <laughs> okay. it is the classic lenses podcast. <laughs> it, it, it is. It is. There are like 15 lenses on my short list that I didn't get to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's our payback for for cutting him off and be letting him do his short list because he yeah. still managed to get everything in there. <laughs> Oh, well, uh, thank thank you for that. Thank you for um, being a being a great guest as well this week. Um, re- really enjoyed that. So uh, so thank you, Perry. Um, no problem. Tom. Okay. Um, right then. So uh, Perry, when you're not on uh, doing on this desert island uh, with uh, Anil and uh, Eric Sluice, um, who are still there, so you can go go and run off and have a have a have a chat to them and build build yourself a fire or something like that. Um, how can people follow you outside of uh, the island and uh, on, on, on this chat that we're having now? Yeah, uh, you can find me at my website, which is perryg.com, which is P-E-R-R-Y-G-E. 
Uh, but I never update that, so don't go there. You can also find me <laughs> on uh, Instagram now, now that I have an active Instagram account, and Flickr, uh, both of which my username is just Perry G, P-E-R-R-Y-G-E. Excellent. And uh, how about you, Johnny? Oh, you can find me uh, on Instagram um, at System Photography. And I, by the time this podcast goes out, I will actually have new pictures up on Instagram. For you've, like you've the said, first, you've, you've said that now for the last three weeks or so or longer. <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been getting dangerously close to posting, but I actually have images digitized and ready to go up finally. Um, and they they will be images from uh, a couple images with the new. Uh, top core s yeah the, i was gonna say on I the blue one. camera yeah the top core s and the blue bessa i've got pictures coming um, yeah so that that's finally happened uh and you can also catch up with me in person uh at central camera company in chicago at the uh camera counter and you will find me there every day except for monday when i hang out here and do the podcast um so that's that and and <laughs> This is where I try to remember all that other good stuff about email, et cetera. Um, uh, speaking of Instagram, you can tag your images with a hashtag. Uh, oh, what is the hashtag? Best vintage lens. That's the one. Best vintage lens. And cl- and classic lenses, I think. I don't even remember. It's been yeah, so long. Yeah, that, that seems to Instagram. change every time. It, it, sometimes it's classic dot lenses and sometimes it's classic lenses. Yeah, yeah. just, I've yeah, been using just dot go, lenses to, go to best vintage lens and it'll, you know, <laughs> on Instagram and they'll explain all that stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, of course, you can uh, send us an email. There's a couple ways you can do that. You can email us directly at uh, classiclensespodcast at gmail.com. Or you can just go right on over to our webpage, which is uh, classiclensespodcast.com, and go to the contact page, and you can reach us there. Um, always, always bear in mind that those emails that go to our uh, through our webpage seem to go into my spam folder. Um, so <laughs> it, it is going to be reliant upon me spotting them before when I before just emptying my spam folder. So if if you have yeah. sent something to me uh, via that means and uh, we've done nothing about it, um, it might be worth just getting dropping us a line via the uh, the Gmail address. Um, so yeah, yeah. We'll, who knows? We'll get that fixed one day. One day. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, okay. And for me, uh, well, actually, before I do me, uh, just a quick reminder of our coffee page. That's ko-fi.com. And you do a search for classic lenses, you'll find our coffee pages to the place a page where you can uh, normally uh, donate uh, to ourselves to help with the running of the podcast and do wonderful things Uh, but this month uh, we are as we said at the top of the show uh, donating everything that comes to us is going to go through uh, to uh, the the charity that helped Carl, Pam and Andy and that's the Down Syndrome Association of Central Florida so uh, um, still got uh, quite a few days left in May so uh, any more donations will be very gratefully received absolutely um, okay i uh, wish to thank kevin mcleod of incompetech.com for our octo blues theme music now finally which that's usually the last thing that we say um need to make an announcement um and that's that uh, johnny and i have decided that we need uh, another regular voice on the show because pretty much we're getting bored of talking to each other and we need we need somebody else to uh, bounce off um, now i'm sure you can appreciate um, 
this is not a decision that we've taken lightly and it's certainly not an easy decision to make and it's something that um, I've actually run past um, Carl's wife um, and she's given our blessing to it. So uh, from next week we will have a new co-host and I hope uh, you've enjoyed today's show because our co-host from next week onwards is none other than Perry G. Welcome to the team. Uh, wow. Thank you, Simon. Um, I mean, when, when you first asked me to join the show, I thought you were just inviting me on to do this, uh, desert Island episode. Um, but you know, I've, I've listened to this podcast since the very beginning, even episode one. Um, and Ouch. it, yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> no, but it'll be, it'll be, uh, my pleasure and a real honor to be on the show. I will do my best to contribute with Humility, good humor, uh, a constant eagerness to learn. And, you know, I think it's kind of fitting because the day that Car uh, the, the day that Simon asked me to join, my, my dad got on a plane to Gainesville, Florida. And he's there right now on a conference because uh, both my parents are biologists. Um, and it, it just kind of seems written in the stars. And uh, hopefully, you know, we have yeah. we have everyone's blessings. Well, it was it was certainly not a... Uh, an easy process to to go through to even think about the uh, let's let's call it the third seat if if, if you like, um, and it was certainly a case that it's it just frankly it's impossible to attempt to find somebody to um, effectively be the call on the show because uh, you know there is no other call out there. No, um, yeah, and uh, so. Uh, when Johnny and I were were, were talking um, about potential options, um, yours was pretty much the first name out of the hat. Yeah. And um, actually, not pretty much. It was. It was. Um, yeah. yeah. And uh, that goes back to uh, when we had you on the show uh, for episode fifty-eight uh, back in March, which we we really enjoyed doing. Um, but also, we also knew that. Uh, I mean, and you've absolutely demonstrated it today that uh, you know, you're, you're, you're totally on board with this this, this way of life uh, that, that we have with, <laughs> with with lenses and gear and, and stuff like that. So you're an absolute perfect fit for the show. So I, I hope that um, uh, our audience uh, agrees with us. Um, so uh, it's 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 great to have you with us, with us, Perry. And uh, next week sure uh, you'll be uh, introduced at the top of the show with us. I'm really looking forward to it, guys. Thank you. Great. Glad to have you here. Okay. So then, uh, uh, finally, um, I hope you've enjoyed uh, the podcast. Uh, it'll be great if you could join us again next week. And if you can, be like Carl. It's going very Did well. Do you want to know what was on my short list? Yeah, I do, actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... <laughs> so the the Voigtlander, I'm finding as many ways as possible to smuggle them in here. Uh, the Voigtlander 21 F4 was on the short list. The ZM28 Biogon was on the short list. Uh, the UC Hexanon was, and then the, the hardest one for me to cut was my favorite lens optically, the, the Zeiss 35 millimeter F2.8 Biogon. Mm -hmm. And it is a travesty that when you had Eric on, he did not put this on his list because this is that would that's BS. Right. This is clearly like the first lens he would put on his list. Um, yeah, Eric, Eric threw us a big curveball that week, didn't he? 
<laughs> not yeah. picking any Icelanders at all. <laughs> yeah, but that one, I mean, it's it's mind blowing. You know, I think Mike Novak and Eric basically have a global monopoly on all of the uh, LTM versions, which like I can't find one because of those guys. I only experienced it at the shop in terms of messing around with it. I don't, I don't own it, any any of it, so so I don't have a lot to contribute on on it. Just you know, because I don't I don't have one yeah. to use, but. Yeah, I mean, when you were in the bathroom, I was just telling Simon that the hardest lens to cut off my shortlist was the 35-28 Biogon, because that's the best 35. I, and I honestly, Perry, I thought that's what you were going to say. I thought that was going to be was, your, It was yeah. there. It was yeah. on my list for so long. Uh, but Simon made me cut it. And I, yeah, <laughs> I, I changed this list so many times. Oh, my God. Uh.